Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch. With virtual reality, virtually everything will change. Discover opportunities in a transforming world. B of AML.com slash VR. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best of economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Let's get right to it with Mickey Levy of Berenberg Capital Markets, responsible, as I said, for the economic coverage of the U.S. and Asia, joins us here in our Bloomberg 1130 uh, studios. Great to see you once again. Let's let's start just by situating us here. We had this big conference uh, in Europe last week in Portugal, uh, central bankers from uh, all over the region uh, gravitating there, uh, from Canada, from Europe, from, uh, no, not the U.S., but uh, 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 certainly the ECB president as well. Uh, in that conversation, what did that conversation tell you about the state of central banking today? What's of concern to them? Well, with, David, that's a, that's a great way to start because basically you have pretty healthy growth in most of these countries, uh, particularly in Europe. Euro area, eurozone um, economic growth has actually exceeded expectations a little bit, and it looks like you know you're getting further from the financial crisis. Meanwhile, you have moderate inflation. So what Draghi is basically saying is, gee, we have. Growth that's exceeded expectations, and, and, and it looks like things are going to be sustained, and moderate low inflation, eventually we're going to have to taper our massive quantitative easing program and uh, move um, the its policy rate from minus 40 basis points. The, that is, the monetary policies are absolutely inconsistent with the economic and inflation fundamentals. And, and so... That's the key issue, and then Draghi's basically saying we're going to have to taper it, but but the ECB, like the Fed in earlier years, uh, didn't want to do so in a way that jars financial markets and upsets the economy, and that, that sums, it, sums it up. So if I look around the world, um, you see monetary policies and central banks conducting policies that are inconsistent with the economic and inflation fundamentals. What did you make of the, the conversation there about coordination, this attempt at trying to coordinate more among central uh, bankers? Oh, I, There was a shrug there for, for our listeners. I, 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 I shrug because central bankers, um, they don't coordinate except if there is an emergency to open up uh, uh, you know, overnight loan facilities. Um, by coordination, they're, they're polite and they, and they alert each other as to what they're going to do, but I think oh, so it's like a marriage. Yeah, I, I, I think the idea of coordinating makes very little sense. Tom, happy Fourth of July in advance. You are wearing the capris as promised. Yes, I got the capris on and the fl I got the flip flops. They're from one of the schools. Okay, I, I, I wore the Tabor Academy flip flops because uh -huh. Mr. Mueller spoke there. Okay, good. earlier this year. But when you have kids, your kids wear flip flops in February. Mm -hmm. When there's like six inches of snow on the ground, that's a cool thing. Yeah. I, you know. Good morning. Save a few Academy. precious sections. Yeah, put yeah. seconds between them on. Anyways, yeah. <laughs> Mickey, let me ask you. I want to ask you about the shadow open market committee. What what is it? First of all, that's a good we, we note your participation well on the shadow open market committee. What is it? What's its history and sort of what are you all thinking about these days? It is a group of um, um, private sector 
almost I'm the only non-academic. All uh -huh. the others are, are work in universities that analyze and critique monetary policy. It was founded in 1973 by um, two world-renowned economists, Carl Brunner mm -hmm. from University of Rochester and Alan Meltzer from um, Carnegie Mellon, and 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 to bring importance of monetary policy to inflation. When the committee was came to be in 1973, um, nobody, including the Fed, thought monetary policy and money had anything to do with inflation. You could read the literature back then. And the committee yeah. has evolved into uh, a group that believes in sound monetary policy, um, in sound and rational uh, banking uh, and financial regulation, and we meet twice a month, and it's 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 just a great committee. And there have been members who have become Federal, uh, Federal Reserve uh, members, and um, it's just it's just a great group. Within that is in carrying the torch for the ver the late and very much missed Alan Meltzer and Carl Brunner of the University of Rochester from years ago, is Bennett McCollum, who worked at Carnegie Mellon and the University of uh, Virginia. Is well, does Bennett McCollum, does Alan Meltzer, does Carl Brunner, do they want rules, or even do they understand you need a little bit of discretion? Tom, that's a great question. The way you phrase it, can I they, go home? They, they, gen <laughs> they generally it, believe in rules, and they rail against the discretion that the Fed uses, playing cat and mouse with the market. Forward and, guidance, and they, yeah, forward guidance, and saying, "Oh, we'll wait to the next piece of economic data." All of these members believe that the Fed should look at intermediate term guidelines and set these guidelines. At the same time, they favor rules over discretion, they also are realistic enough to realize that at certain points um, you need discretion. So, for example, there's legislation pending on in Congress uh, authored by the House Financial Services Committee that would make the Fed more rules-based, that is to establish a rule to guide them, but if they deviate from it and they would be able to deviate from it, they'd have to explain it to yeah, the public and Congress. Excuse me for interrupting, uh, David Gurr, but I think this is really yes. important. Uh, Mr. Henserling has a definition of Texas A&M rules that's way different from rules discretion of John B. Taylor of Stanford, Glenn Hubbard of Columbia, Professor Goodfriend of Carnegie Mellon, the, the House wants a rule like the designated hitter rule or the sacrifice bunt rule. It, it, it's too, is it, am I right that the House proposal's not what you and those good economists would want? No, I think if you look at Hensleringer's legislation called the Financial Choice Act that's pending in Congress, um, it if you read the detail, it asks the Fed to establish the rule that it wants, and in fact, it can change that rule if it wants, and, and then it has to, it doesn't have to stick to that rule, but when it deviates from it, it has to explain it to uh, Congress. Now, keep in mind, it is the House Financial Services Committee on the House side and the Senate Banking Committee on the, on the Senate side that are charged with supervising the Fed. And so, from their angle, it would be good if the Fed had a guy guideline that they could, when they, when, when uh, the chair of the Fed comes up to testify, they, they could ask the chair, 
oh, I see you're on your rule or, oh, you're deviating from it. But it's up in their legislation. It's up to the Fed to establish whatever rule for the moment it feels is, is appropriate. And this, is, this is very different from the Fed where, where it bounces from one idea to the next, China, uh, the dollar, um, wait for the next piece of data, and playing cat and mouse with the markets. What's, we'll come back with you here in just a sec, but let me ask you about how the, the regulatory responsibility of the Fed stands to change. Do you think it's going to change here during this, uh, this administration? I think it will change, and I think the impetus for that change uh, comes once again from Congress that has legislation. And the general thrust of the legislation is to force banks to uh, maintain a very high level of capital and to, in that, move away from Basel III risk weightings and include even the economic value of, off, of what's on off-balance sheets. And then once they maintain that high level of capital, to ease off on a lot of the Dodd-Frank micro-regulations. That's the general thrust. And, you know, we look at legislation pending on the Hill now, and even if it doesn't pass in its full form, I do think you have this impetus toward uh, easing off from some of the micro-regulations, because if you look at it, the costs of um, complying with those mm. are the highest for small and regional banks that are making a big portion of the loans to small and medium-sized businesses that generate a lot of the employment gains. And so I think there is this general impetus, and it'll be mm -hmm. the legislative uh, uh, the legislation that the Fed will abide by. And, mm -hmm. and once again, if you look at, like, Randy Quarles, who's going to be nominated right. uh, to, to take over Dan Trullo's job at the Fed. Well, let's um, come back. Yeah. Let's come back. Mickey Levy with us on Fed. We'll continue this discussion. We've been waxing philosophical at 60,000 feet. Let's go down to 5,000 feet here. July 28. It's July, folks, for those of you that have like Gura, taking the Thanks weekend the off. Yep. <laughs> uh, how, how far out Fire Island were you where very you completely close forgot very about close. business? No, very, you know, just, uh, just a little ways away from Jones Beach. Yeah, so yeah. it's too bad. <laughs> it's beautiful. Ju July it's 28th, beautiful. Uh, Dr. Levy, we get the first look at second quarter uh, GDP. It's okay, but it's really not okay. What's lagging? Is it consumption lagging or is investment just that big a hole in the discussion? Tom, I think you're making a great point because we had a disappointing Q1. That yeah. People said, oh, it was due to temporary factors. It's been revised up a bit. You would expect a full bounce back in Q2. Um, basically, consumer spending is growing. It's okay. What's interesting on consumer spending is even though wealth is very high and real disposable incomes are rising rapidly, people you know, are a little more cautious than they were before the financial crisis. Housing is doing very well. Capital spending has been the disappointment throughout the economic expansion. Can policy change that? Yes. Tax policy could change then that. Then what are we waiting for? We're doing videos. <laughs> We're going after, you know, Williams we're, College graduates. We're waiting, we're waiting because uh, the White House um, and Congress in their sequencing decided to put this extremely difficult issue of health care reform yeah. before tax. And once they opened up that can of worms, once you give something to people, that is the ACA, 
however flawed the, 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 the legislation is, it's very hard to take it away. So they're caught up in that. The significant increase in uh, confidence reflected in consumer and particularly business surveys suggests that if you were to get tax reform, you would get very positive responses. And it would really clear the air um, yeah, but and David, get a nice what, response. David Gura, what's your reading over the weekend? I read a Mnuchin Cone uh, treatment that these guys are gung-ho. So what? Yeah. You know, the, where, the big, where's the so what? The big challenge, I think, remains at legislative. When you talk about confidence in the economy, how big a component part of that is confidence in Washington to get stuff done? In other words, is the economy fine exclusive of Washington or does, do things need to happen there? Things need to happen if you really want to break out to the upside on sustained economic growth. We're growing okay, 2%. But look over the – since the financial crisis, look at how U.S. potential growth – as has come down, as as people have had more dour expectations, come down relative to Europe and the UK. Um, we're growing. U.S. is growing okay. Employment's okay, but productivity's weak. Wages are very weak. How do you break out of that? Well, you create a, a, an environment that is that where businesses are th- where they're thinking about a longer term investment project or an expansion. They they know the environment's going to be good rather than more and more regulations and the threats of higher taxes. So we're doing okay if if Washington continues to dither. The probability of recession in the U.S. is very low, but we'll continue to grow, you know, two, two and a quarter. If you really want to get a, a stronger growth with higher wages, uh, you really need uh, fiscal reforms. I just want to ask you about uh, what we know about what this administration wants to do. I'm struck by the report that uh, the Treasury Secretary issued a few weeks back on bank regulation. It was thick and very detailed and very different from other plans we've gotten from mm-hmm. the administration on tax reform, say, or, or trade policy. Do we need more of that? Do you? Does the market need more detailed explanation of what this, this administration intends to do? David, I think we need more action. Mm-hmm rather than more, you know, statements. And once again, um, I think what is missing here is from the White House a real uh, uh, list of priorities and a sequencing of those priorities. If that were done from day one of the Trump administration, you wouldn't be caught up in things. Now, when I stand back and look at the Trump administration and try to abstract from President Trump's very unpresidential behavior. Uh, what I see is they have made progress on certain on the regulatory fronts in labor, in uh, certain regulations, and no. on the regulatory front, you're actually seeing some positive changes. However, when I look at the legislative front. They've struck out. Okay. Well, let's, uh, th- Mickey Levy, thank you so much. Look forward. You're testifying in Washington end of uh, July. Thank you so much. Good luck with that testimony. Worldwide, this is Bloomberg. It is wonderful, the relationship we've had over the years with Robert Allen Feldman of Morgan Stanley, uh, MUFG of Tokyo, uh, without question the most predominant English-speaking analyst 
of not only the economics of Japan, but the society of Japan. And David Gura, as you bring in Dr. Feldman, uh, needless to say, once again, a stunning shock in Japan in the last 24 hours. Indeed. And let's start there. Robert Feldman, Senior Advisor to Morgan Stanley, joining us on our phone lines. Let me begin, if I could, with what happened over the weekend. This was an election, as I understand it, in Tokyo. Uh, why is, yeah. is a uh, essentially a local election so important when you look at the, 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 the politics of Japan writ large? Well, uh, the Tokyo uh, prefecture is obviously the largest prefecture yeah. in the country, and it is a trendsetter for the rest of the country. And there is a history over the last 30 years that these Tokyo assembly elections, this is for the prefectural assembly, mm-hmm. do uh, serve as harbingers for national trends. So that's why this election was so important. So r- remind us here of what happened uh, over the weekends. Get us up to speed on uh, the results, yes, but also the import of, mm-hmm. of what we saw. Well, first of all, the Tokyo Assembly has 127 seats. Prior to the election, uh, Prime Minister Abe's party, the LDP, had 56. Now it has 23. Uh, prior to the election, uh, Governor Koika's party and her coalition partners had 27. Now they have 79. So she has a very strong majority uh, now, and it's a big defeat uh, for the LDP. Uh, in one sense, however, uh, this actually could be exactly what Prime Minister Abe needed. His party has been in complacency for a number of months now. He's been trying to shake them out of it. They don't want to be shaken uh, because, you know, the stock market's up. Everybody's happy. They didn't want to move. Now they have a crisis, and he has an opportunity uh, to uh, work along the lines of my little uh, uh, gizmo I use to analyze these things called the Crick Cycle, Crisis uh-huh. Response Improvement Complacency. So uh, if uh, Prime Minister Abe can rise to this crisis and get his own party back in line, then he has an opportunity to join with Governor Koike in some of the common, and there are many of them, uh, issues that they uh, want to address and uh, get the LDP back on the reformist track. So that's why it's an important election. How did Governor Koike run here? Was she, was she running as a, a sort of to, uh, basically just as, as a foil to him, saying that she was different than he is? Or how, di- how different were the platforms, I guess? Well, uh, she was clearly not running against the LDP National Party. She made it very, very clear that this was a local election about Tokyo. (laughs) She and uh, Prime Minister Abe actually get along very well. Uh, But her style of politics uh, is a... um, uh, discuss and decide style rather than an interest group based style. And so the old guard and the LDP don't like that style of politics. That's why they don't like her very much. Uh, but she ran uh, with a very long platform of individual issues. There's still some priorities to be set, but she ran on issues really. What do we do about the, the fish market issue where there was some contamination uh, under uh, some areas that had supposed to be filled in with landfills, but weren't, et cetera, et cetera. So she ran on issues, uh, and she, but she also ran on openness. Uh, and she used some of the um, language, like the, the Japanese word mieruka, which means visibility, hmm. that even Prime Minister him, uh, Abe himself has been using. So there's a lot between them, and his underlying message was very attractive, uh, although some of the things about the LDP it not, uh, itself, recent scandals were not. Robert Feldman, where does the LDP go from, from here when you, when you look at uh, the prime minister's government, for instance? What's going to change as a result of what we saw? Well, we don't know the answer to that uh, question yet, and they have to make some decisions. But basically, this is a question of whether Prime Minister Abe can do the same thing he did early in his administration on the agricultural issue. Uh, Japan had been um, dawdling for months and months and months and years about whether to go into the TPP negotiations. Uh, When Abe came to office, he said, we're going to go in because it's in the national interest. And if the agricultural guys don't like it, I'm sorry, but, you know, we have to do this for the national interest. When he did that, his support rate went up. 
And so that's why uh, he has an opportunity Um, to do the same thing here. Dr. Feldman, give us an update on what passes for immigration debate in Japan. Mm -hmm. There's generational shifts. There's labor shifts. People talk about the low unemployment rate in Japan. Is the immigration into Japan different than the immigration into Japan of 10 or 40 years ago? Yes, it is different. It's different in a couple ways. One is where the people are coming from. They're mostly Asians. Um, About a third of the immigrants now are from China. Another third plus are from other Asian countries. The other thing is numbers. Japan today has about 1.1 million foreign workers inside the country. Um, This is a huge increase. Last year alone, there were 176,000 extra foreign workers uh, who came in uh, to the country. The stock went up by 176,000, 62,000 from Vietnam. Uh, Without the foreign workers in Japan today, the unemployment rate would not be 3%. It would be 1.5%. So this is a qualitatively different labor market than it was before. We saw the headlines over the weekend, our president here in the U.S. reaching out to the the president of Japan and and China uh, to talk about the situation in North Korea. And I wonder if you could just share how large that looms over daily life uh, in Tokyo and uh, sort of what what, what steps uh, you see uh, going forward here. Well, uh, certainly uh, the uh, nuclear threat from North Korea is taken very, very seriously by people. It is not very far from the North Korean launch sites to Tokyo. If they are successful in uh, putting a uh, uh, miniaturized nuclear weapon on top of a medium-term rocket, that would be an extremely serious threat to Japan. So people are very worried about that. Uh, And I think uh, this is an issue uh, where uh, we need to to make uh, more uh, more progress rather quickly uh, because the North Koreans are making their own progress uh, quite quickly. Uh, And so unless uh, that happens, uh, then we're going to be facing a a mutually assured destruction situation, much like in the Cold War, that is not comfortable for anybody. What role is is Japan playing on this issue uh, in the region? So so much of the conversation here is about the the role that China is playing as an ally of North Korea, the role they could play in uh, enforcing or thickening uh, sanctions against North Korea. Uh, what, what role is Japan playing? Well, Japan is uh, an ally of the United States, a military ally of the United States. We have a mutual um, uh, alliance. Uh, and Japan uh, is actually has a, an extremely strong and well-equipped uh, navy. Uh, they own a number of uh, Aegis uh, uh, um, uh, destroyers, etc. And so Japan is playing uh, quite a, an important role in supporting U.S. activity in the region. As you know, Japan's constitution prohibits uh, any offensive uh, uh, capability. It actually, at least by the letter, prohibits Japan even from having uh, an, uh, a military, mm. although uh, that has been interpreted uh, as being um, just uh, incorrect. Uh, in terms of the, um, the sovereign right of a nation to, to defend itself. But basically, Japan is uh, limiting itself to support for U.S. forces in terms of bases and uh, seaborne support, uh, back um, uh, sort of uh, uh, logistical operations, things like that. Uh, but Japan wants to play a more active role uh, because it wants to be a reliable ally of the United States. And I think there's a growing consensus, particularly with what's going on in, in North Korea now, yeah. uh, that uh, Japan does need to play a more active role. The distance from North Korea's capital to Japan's capital is about a Chicago to New York. Mm. But how really wide is the Sea of Japan? How how wide is the Sea of Japan between Korea Peninsula and Japan? How wide is that perceived by the Japanese people, Robbie? I think the Japanese people perceive it as uh, rather a uh, short distance. Yeah. Um, it kind of depends on how fast the missiles are flying. Like Cuba short? Uh, 
Uh, basically, yes. Uh, any substantial uh, placement of uh, nuclear-armed missiles in North Korea would be at least the equivalent of a, um, of a Cuban Missile Crisis, in my view. Yeah. How much weight does this have on the economy, this uncertainty about the, the geopolitics of the region? It does have some weight on the economy, but I think people uh, mostly are optimistic that uh, cooler heads will prevail. Uh, because after all, China uh, certainly has a huge national interest in remaining connected to the global economy. Um, it's just a question of what are the rules by which that is going to be done. Uh, the missiles in North Korea are a threat to China as well. Uh, although a lot of people in China don't want to recognize that, it is a fact. Um, and uh, so I think that um, uh, cooler heads are likely to prevail. Uh, and we see that uh, in terms of game theory as well. Uh, for example, if you're in game theory, if you have an uncooperative partner, you can do two things. You can uh, give them a better reward for cooperating, or you, cooperating, or you can worsen the, the, uh, the payoff for not cooperating. And the history of the uh, North Korea relations with China, with the U.S., with Japan, is really a um, – well, uh, is this uh, structure in a nutshell. Pleasure to have Robert Feldman with us again, senior advisor to Morgan Stanley, talking about Japan. And we talked about the uh, uh, the elections in Tokyo over the weekend, talked a bit about uh, geopolitics. Let's, let's talk some about trade, if we could now. As I gather, there's been a lot of focus on a pact between uh, Europe, the EU, uh, and Japan. What's the status of, of that agreement, and uh, what's the status of the trading relationship between Japan and the U.S.? Well, I think the European uh, free trade agreement with Japan is moving forward, but it's not really uh, the center of attention. Uh, in Japan, we essentially view uh, the Pacific uh, Asia trade uh, as uh, the most likely future uh, for the country. Uh, the relationship with the U.S. is obviously uh, in some trouble. Uh, Japan put a great deal uh, of effort into the TPP, made a, a number of uh, very difficult political compromises to get to the final decision, and then that was um, uh, thrown out by the U.S. or reneged on by the U.S. Uh, for reasons that uh, the U.S. Uh, has tried to make clear. But Japan did feel uh, like uh, they had been um, uh, they made political sacrifices only to have those uh, pushed aside. Now what happens uh, is uh, Japan is working very hard to reconstitute the TPP as a, an agreement among Asian countries only, but do so in a way that leaves the door open to the U.S. coming back in. That is put through rules, uh, and the TPP is a very rule-oriented uh, agreement uh, that the U.S. will be happy with uh, when things uh, sort of settle down in that regard. In a certain sense, this is a repetition of history because the U.S., as you uh, recall, in, the, uh, in 1930 passed the Smoot-Hawley tariffs, mm. uh, was retaliated against immediately uh, by other countries around the world, and then moved back toward free trade very quickly in the 1934 uh, Trade Act. Um, now, I hope things move a little faster this time than they did in the 1930s. Uh, but basically, we've seen this uh, movie before, uh, and uh, the Japanese are just trying to do everything they can uh, to make it uh, fast forward, uh, including uh, negotiating with the U.S. in terms of getting a U.S.-Japan free trade agreement online, which would be very much like the TPP. But also working with Asian partners uh, to uh, make it clear to the U.S. that there are alternatives. What does that uh, TPP-11, as it's being called, uh, the TPP-X, mm -hmm. uh, the U.S., uh, look like? How much enthusiasm is there for it in the region? How different is it from the deal that would have included the U.S.? 
Well, obviously, it's a much smaller deal because yeah. the U.S. is such a large economy. But I think the content of the deal is not likely to be all that much different uh, for the simple reason that if you start opening uh, issues that have already been decided, then every issue gets opened and the negotiations just break down again. Uh, so my mm-hmm. expectation is that these uh, negotiations will go relatively quickly uh, and they will come to fruition in a form with a, a quite a high, uh, uh, high-grade agreement. Uh, but in the, at the same time, uh, the Chinese initiative, to which Japan is also a party, uh, will move forward with a lower grade agreement. Uh, and just we need as many of these things as we can to keep the, the trade opening um, initiative going. Tell us about the generational shift in Japan. We've all got our biases and our myths. And frankly, uh, Dr. Feldman, our ignorance is what does the youth want? The people under 30 years old, what do they want? I think what they want is a stable future, or something that they can look forward to. Um, they're working very hard to keep themselves uh, uh, healthy uh, because uh, no matter how good your health care system is, and Japan has a pretty good one, uh, it's much better to be healthy than it is to be sick. Uh, and so they're trying to ke- take care of themselves. They're educating themselves more. You walk around Tokyo today and there are levels of English and breadth of English being used that you would never have seen. 10 years ago. Interesting. Why is that? Is that just, just they, that's a generational decision or is it something else? I think uh, partly it's uh, so many people have uh, uh, been abroad, grown up abroad, but also I think it's the tourist boom over the last few years that Prime Minister Abe himself triggered by changing the visa rules, etc. And by setting right. uh, tourism guides. It, it's good business to speak English now. And so we're seeing uh, even people uh, uh, much older uh, begin to learn a little bit more than they than they used to. It's it's really quite wonderful. And now one final question with Robert Allen Feldman. <laughs> the worst airport trip, Robbie, is Narita uh-huh. to Tokyo. Have they fixed that or is it still Japanese all world worst? Well, uh, when I go from uh, Narita to uh, Tokyo, I take the Narita Express. It's a pretty good uh, ride. Yeah. It's a very nice train. Um, it's a long ride. Uh, but, you know, when I go, I try to go to JFK on the train, it's not such a nice ride. Uh, yeah, that would be uh, true. true. What can, true, what can true. our president learn from the infrastructure development of the nice ride from Narita to yeah. Tokyo? Well, I think uh, a lot of Americans already understand that our infrastructure needs a lot of work. And I think New York deserves some credit because New York has been upgrading its infrastructure. It's better than it used to be. But there's so much that needs to be done. Uh, Japan has also uh, got much better air traffic control um, uh, uh, protocols uh, using GPS and stuff like that, which the U.S. doesn't have yet. We really need a huge infrastructure uh, initiative in the U.S. that both Republicans and Democrats agree we need. Uh, So, you know, let's get on with it and uh, uh, rebuild our infrastructure the way so many Asian countries have. Look forward to seeing you in Tokyo off the Narita Express. Robert Ellen Feldman, legendary senior advisor, Morgan Stanley UFG, uh, as well today. What a joy to talk to you. I have been with him, David. Um, He is treated completely different in Japan. Is that right? He is the definitive... More respect than you offer him? No. You know, he is the definitive (laughs) English-speaking person. Yes. In Japan, he's, yeah, I, I hate to say it, good morning, Ambassador Kennedy. Uh-huh. He's bigger than Mike Mansfield. He's bigger than Caroline Kennedy. He wow. is hugely respected within their media. Great to get his perspective on yeah. uh, all of those things. Shocking Politics, vote. We got yeah, a lot vote. to learn about here. This caught me completely unawares. Yeah. I, I did not see this coming. And it, again, this dichotomy between urban and rural, the really the linchpin to LB, LDP politics mm-hmm. is... 
Dr. Feldman said it's changing. Thanks to our it's team well. for lining up Dr. Feldman here over the Our London the team, yes, yeah, exactly. working, unlike our U.S. Yeah. <laughs> London, Ritika Gupta killing it yes, over in London yeah. as well. Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch. With virtual reality, virtually everything will change. Discover opportunities in a transforming world. B of slash VR. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated. Why don't you bring in Mr. Katz? This is really cool. And it really works, and it really sort of got immediate traction. Yeah, would Don. Be how I'd put it. Don Katz joins us now. He's the founder and CEO of Audible. Uh, Audible, a company we associate with Amazon. Of course, Amazon acquired Audible just a few years ago. Audible's been around since 1995. Don Katz, how did you get the idea uh, to do this? As somebody who grew up listening to a, a book on tape or two, uh, how did you decide to that, that there was an opportunity here to move in this direction? You know, there are so many Genesis stories, those yeah. kind of uh, ideas that become become reality, David. It's uh, it, uh, Audible. Um, I actually was supposed to write my fourth book. I was a writer and journalist for 20 years, and uh, and my fourth book. And I changed my uh, Esquire magazine article over to tech, and I got more and more interested in things like uh, what was coming in terms of analog to digital uh, signal processing and the like. And it sort of came to me that these... Uh, Audiobooks I used to jog in Riverside Park in, in uh, Manhattan uh-huh. in, in a belly pack, which were extremely inefficient yeah. in all ways of the publishing value chain that it, you could actually okay. uh, shoot them through the phone lines, which was right. the Internet back then. Mr. Katz and, always travels with an entourage, folks, and one of his entourage whispered to me, <laughs> Don will play down who he is. Let's regroup, folks. Mr. Katz studied with Ralph Ellison at New York University a few years ago in uh, Darken the Door at Chicago and LSE is, well, what was it like 40 years ago in the shadow of Ralph Ellison at New York University? Well, I'm glad you brought that up, and uh, it's one of the most important things that's ever happened to me. So, uh, yeah, Ralph Ellison, the great American novelist, uh, took me on not just as a student, but then as a kind of a 2T and a a mentor. And uh, Audible kind of came naturally out of the many things I learned from this brilliant man. And one of them was that American literature really descended directly from the way we talked and bragged and told stories around campfires. So he was always about the the integrity of the the oral culture, not just the in the vernacular culture, not just the uh, yeah. the written culture. You know, even though I was kind of a literary writer, and uh, and so you know, just the in unleashing the power of the spoken word is. Audible's really done a pretty good job of that, and now we've got yeah. just right as we're speaking, you know, millions and millions of people listening uh, for an average two hours a day right. to uh, to people telling them stories, and uh, sometimes it's Scarlett Johansson or Colin Firth, and uh, it's become a yeah. you know kind of a big thing, and you know we embedded the first digital audio player that uh, allows you to, do, to allow you to do that and it's right. going to be um, well, uh, 20 years. You mentioned integrity in Mr. Ellison in Invisible Man. That goes to his integrity which is what to do about the, uh, the, the poverty and income distinctions of this country. You are acclaimed for work in Newark, New Jersey. Explain what you're doing in Newark besides watching the reinvigorated New Jersey Devils. Yeah, so Newark... Uh, this was just a, when, 10 years ago, we moved, what we did is just voted with our feet. We moved the company to downtown Newark. We were still on NASDAQ, uh, quite surprising to various of our 
holders that we wouldn't want to move to a city was considered challenged, if not dangerous. And, you know, we did it to basically try to see if uh, a company can be more than that company, which is growing and becoming very successful. You measure yourself and, you know, you can even say your job output and your, you know, taxable revenue. But we decided to see what, what it meant to kind of activate caring on the ground in a city that was still struggling to come back from decades of uh, What'd you of learn? deprivation. What did you learn? Well, for one thing, we learned that the uh, the educational wins in a city like Newark is really Newark's best thing, the K-12 innovations that have come to teaching from the great public charters like KIPP and Uncommon Schools and then the public schools. Forty percent of the kids are in BPO schools. And what we learned was that if we just made a rule that all the paid interns had to be kids from Newark, then these amazingly high-energy content of the character kids come into the uh, lives as we were becoming the largest employer of actors in the New York area. And it just created this incredibly rich culture of, um, of different kinds of people from super high techies to, uh, to English majors turned into uh, the business people and the like. And, and the company kind of soared for it. We also learned that you really can um, impact by design, which you guys talk a lot about mm. the micro and the macroeconomics of the world, that to connect the city to the growth economy meant that we needed a lot of audibles in Newark as opposed to what often happens with economic development in a state like New Jersey. You look backwards to saving the, the old. So we've done a lot of things, that, uh, including starting a venture fund, Newark Venture Partners, that already is uh, kind of well on its way to planning dozens of little audibles in Newark, as many other things, great things happen, which is the, the built apartments are coming up in Newark. Uh, we're, we came with 125 people, 1,200 people around now, and uh, we're, built, we're rehabbing a church down the street into a tech center for a second building, and um, restaurants like Barcade moved across the street, and just saw Marcus Samuelson the other day, incredible person he is, uh, putting a restaurant just down the street in the new Hain building, and we just uh, consistently tried to be a little inventive about things. And uh, I think what cut, cut your guys' mm-hmm. eyes recently was we just decided to say, if you, if you want to move into the main building, we'll take 20 of the loft apartments, and we'll just pay your rent for the first year if you're an Audible employee. And it was massively oversubscribed. You know, so you did a lottery. percent of the workforce. It was a lottery, exactly. And then we said, if you move to Newark at all, we'll just supplement you with $250 a month in, in, in spending money. <clears throat> and uh, a Excuse whole me, lot, of, that's a like lot s- of people who, st- you know, who take the train from Brooklyn and the yeah. Iron District to, to Newark suddenly wanted to live in Newark. <laughs> $250 a month spending money doesn't start it because they may say, David, you have to use that at Whole Foods to buy avocados. <laughs> right. <laughs> Don, let me ask you about uh, what you've learned about what makes for a good uh, audiobook. You mentioned Scarlett Johansson doing uh, some of these, uh, Zachary Kinto doing, uh, doing others. Does, does it matter if the author reads it or, or uh, a trained actor uh, reads it? What makes for a good audiobook? It's uh, interesting you say that. You've got a dozen data scientists with dozens of PhDs between them studying the, 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 the exactness of the, of the science behind it. But what, what we find is that um, when we decided to go out and hire it, the Colin Firths and Dustin Hoffmans and Kate Winslet, you really kind of saw what great actors do when they interpret. And when we position a book as a, not, as, a, as a script, you see these great, great actors doing what they do to create these nuanced performances. But the key thing is the, is, is the seductive intimacy of being read to personally. You know, audible experience is almost all driving or exercising or doing things around the house, and it's a performance just for you. 
And I, I think the, the, the intensity of it also harks back to Happy Child as it being read to by your, by your parents. Um, but the, the, the performance values have just gone up and up, and you know, we're pretty proud to have been, been part of that, just to, to really connect the, the, the sector to, mm-hmm. uh, to great actors. You know, it's, it, the spoken word always should have been an American media type that's up there with any, any element of video and music and books. It kind of got right. stuck. It kind of got stuck as a kind of a poor sister of books when it should have been, you know, yeah. thrown out into the storytelling world the way the movie industry was. And I think we've made a lot of progress in creating a, a mainstream yeah. media type. And I'm sure my old mentor Ralph Ellison would be proud because that's all he cared about. Let's come back with Don Katz of New York University and a company called Audible. I believe he works with Mr. Bezos. Maybe we can talk about <laughs> Amazon and the futures for the the record number of Amazon boxes in my hallway. Of a number of apartments, uh, David grows fourteen. You've divided the apartment. Ones. You've made some new rooms out of those boxes. You no, this is like the this. floor that I, I don't have a manse like you. <laughs> right. You know, when you right. live in Brooklyn, you can get up to four thousand. Oh yeah, square feet. <laughs> Nine years on from an acquisition by Amazon, uh, if you were sitting with the leadership of Whole Foods today, Don Katz, <laughs> what would you say is the best practices of Mr. Bezos? Really good question. Well, I think the good news is that, uh, you know, depending on what, what's going on inside Whole Foods, is that Amazon is uh, kind of a dream acquirer if you have a sophisticated culture and, uh, and uh, you know, you already have a brand and a business model and a culture that, uh, that is, you know, elevates the, the people who work with you, is that you're, you, get to, you get to keep that and you, can, uh, you will uh, just have, have some of the, the positive synergies of being connected to a a profound invention culture, and to say nothing of, uh, you know, accumulation of the best uh, online customers in the history of commerce, and uh, it's been it's been a pretty exciting thing. And you know, I personally went way back with Jeff Bezos because uh, we were in the first in the same Kleiner Perkins, uh, you know, Series A class, and uh, so we got together back in 1996 to compare notes. And he told me what he was going to do, and I told him mm-hmm. I had this idea that people would be walking around with little solid state devices in their pockets packed with culture and I was going to you know, lead inventing the first one. He said it would take years for that to yeah. have traction in the market. He was kind of right about that. <laughs> but, uh, but boy, when it took off, it really took off. But it's been, it's, it's, uh, it's it's been fascinating to you know share our our customer centricity. You know, Amazon thrives on the idea that you don't look sideways at a competition. You actually just focus on what the customer's life could be if it was if you served them better. And they've thrived with that. And then you you and yeah. before they ask. And uh, it's oh, so funny. My on. journalism days, I got to spend time with a lot of incredible yeah. people who taught me a lot. And one was W. Edwards Deming, the great uh, right. statistician. We mentioned him on Friday. Yeah. Yeah, Let me ask uh, you this you know, question. This is Jeff Bezos ever come up, come, called you up and said, I want Tom Waits to do Audible on this book or that book? He, he definitely, uh, we do talk about, you know, the talent explosion. Here's He's the really dirt. Okay. It's gonna, he, and also, you know, they were, they're really supportive of the stuff we're doing in Newark, this idea of embracing urban renaissance yeah. and defining the company. And, uh, and and look, you know, it's uh, you know, it, I I was a Nasdaq CEO at a time, as you guys know, and you know, the probably 2005 to 2007, that was it was not that fun to be a, a smaller cap, you know, mid cap company at those days, and uh, and this uh, this was just a. You know, a really kind of happy marriage, and uh, you kind of get the best of all worlds. So entrepreneurs call me all the time to ask me how, how, you, how you get to them. Don, let me ask you about original content. Uh, I, I saw a number of former colleagues at my past employer march over to your offices to start working on original content for uh, Audible. 
and I, I noticed in the Pew report on the state of American journalism. Now, I think something like four out of ten Americans uh, have now listened to a, a podcast. There are those though who say that podcasting is in a bubble state. There are more of them than we need, more of them that are being listened uh, to. How do you how do you look at the landscape? Are there too many podcasts, and how do you separate yourself from from all of them? Yeah. We are really investing heavily in all kinds of, uh, of produced-to-the-form audio. I mean, we're very successful positioning books as scripts. And beyond that, um, we know so much about the, uh, the aesthetics of the listening experience and what works and what doesn't that we have people who are some of the best you know, print editors in the city working with us as signing writers to write directly to the form. We just announced a $5 million fund to support emerging playwrights doing one and two yeah. voice plays, uh, and, and as you know, some of the better um, folks from your world in public radio have come over, um, of, you know, just the radio world, to help us produce directly uh, different yeah. kinds of, of content. So, so we're, you know, we're, we're pushing out tons of, of different things there. And, you know, the, the, the listening revolution has extended beyond our, you know, get what you pay for world. Right. We've done pretty well saying that, you know, if it's the kind of thing a consumer pays for, for their information and their entertainment or their educational aspirations, then you probably have okay. far at the right I, place. I get, but I, podcasting I, is, is, is a different thing. It's, it is, in fact, a, uh, an explosion right. of user-generated folks talking. Don, you know, I got one more question world. I get again. Oh, this, yeah, is so jo- this is from Josen from Manila. <laughs> Jim Dale is the voice of the Harry Potters on Audible Books. I mean, for starters, folks, Jim Dale wrote, wrote the great song Georgie's Girl, Georgie Girl from a million years ago. Did you pick Jim Dale out for the Harry Potter books? We did not. In fact, one of the great uh, mysteries was that we actually didn't have this great relationship with J.K. Rowling, and and, uh, and we didn't even have the book until the last couple of years. And Jim Dale's performance in the U.S. and Stephen Fry, the iconic uh, you know Brit- British figure in the U.K., are two of the great nuanced performances of, yeah. ever of, a, of an audio book. And it's it's one of those things where you you kind of can't believe it. You get like goosebumps. People come to life just through these slightly nuanced uh, introductions and characteristics. Yeah. He's, he's an amazing actor. And, but, but he's in our studios a lot doing other things. And uh, and we just actually ran some commercials on the Oscars that, uh, that featured him. And one of them is you know, great actors. And it's fascinating. There's, it's an entirely se- separate world of acting. It's like a long-form um, distance runner who can keep mm-hmm. the consistency and, and keep the story arc you know, alive and you know, kind of humanized and brought mm-hmm. to life through the voice. And it's not for everybody. You know, a lot of movie actors who are used to close-ups well, and the like um, don't, don't necessarily okay. do it. We, we this is, taught this all over the yeah. world in acting schools. Okay, Don, thank you. Don Katz. Great to speak with you. Audible, great to speak with you. This is Bloomberg. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch. With virtual reality, virtually everything will change. Discover opportunities in a transforming world. B of slash VR. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated.